This is the MIT CEO Startup Connect podcast, a series that builds a virtuous startup ecosystem and brings together entrepreneurial leaders for meaningful connections and conversations. My name is Sean. I'm the co-founder of this series, and I'm an MIT alum studying business analytics and data science. My name is Vanessa. I'm also the co-founder of this series and an MIT alum as well, studying finance and analytics. For the MIT CEO Startup Connect series, my name is Sean Chan. I am an MIT alum, graduated back in 2020, and I'm currently working in data science at Google.、Uh, I'm the co-host for today's event. We're super happy to have Brian Harris, the co-founder and CEO at MedRhythm, a leading digital music therapeutics company, to join our today's podcast live event. Actually, Brian and I met back in I think late 2019 or early 2020 in a cafe in Boston downtown. We're just talking about entrepreneurship and startups and stuff like that. And then recently, his company raised the Series B round, which was about 25 million dollars. So huge congrats, Brian. We're gonna dive deeper into that for sure.、Um, I'd also like to introduce my co-host Vanessa, who co-founded this Startup Connect series with me and is part of the board for MIT CEO. So Vanessa, you want to say hi? Yeah, first, thanks, Sean. Hi, everyone.、Uh, my name is Vanessa Guo. I graduated from MIT Master of Finance program, also back in 2020, and currently work as a consultant in Boston. Fun fact is that I also have a background in classical music as a violinist and singer, so I'm really looking forward to the discussion with Brian later. So, for our podcast fans, Sean and I are really excited to relaunch the Startup Connect ecosystem with all of you after a few weeks of winter snowstorm. For those of you who are in Boston, perfect. So, let's dive into our agenda today. Next slide, please. Our agenda today includes three main sections. The first one is an introduction, which is including the MIT CEO as an organization, as well as the intro for our guest speaker. And after that, we're going to dive into the panel discussion, which would lead for about 30 minutes. And at the end, we'll open up for discussions for everybody to jump in and and just maybe leave your comments in the chat box early so that we'll know、uh, which ones to be asking at the end.、Um, and also, this event will be recorded、uh, because it will be made into a podcast later on. So MIT CEO stands for MIT Chinese Entrepreneurs Organization. We're an MIT student group founded about five years ago. Our mission is to build a community where entrepreneurial thought leaders can learn from serial entrepreneurs, renowned professors, and prestigious investors. Currently, we have about five different communities, including biotech, clean tech, AI, consumer TMT, and fintech, with more than 2,000 active members within our network. MIT CEO Startup Connect series aims to build a virtuous local startup ecosystem that fosters meaningful connections and conversations. And now I will pass on to Vanessa for the guest speaker intro. Thank you, Sean. So for our second event of the Startup Connect series, we're very thrilled to have Mr. Brian Harris. Graduated from Boston University with a master's in music therapy, Brian is still co-founder and CEO at Matt Rhythms, a digital therapeutics company that improves the walking of patients with neurologic injuries and disease via music and technology. Matt Rhythm, as previously mentioned, recently closed its $25 million Series B round, which were majorly backed by Morningside Ventures and Avantage Capital. So, huge congrats again, Brian! Before starting Matt Rhythms, Brian created the first neurologic music therapy program at Spalding Rehabilitation Networks, the official teaching partner of the Harvard Medical School Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. He has been an invited speaker as well as guest lecturer at venues throughout the world, including Harvard Medical School, Berklee College of Music, 
the American Association of Neurological Surgeons, Stanford, the Neuro Neurology Foundation of India, and Google. Brian's work related to music and rehabilitation has also been featured in Forbes, CNBC, The Huffington Post, Rolling Stone, TechCrunch, and many more. Brian has been named to MedTech Boston 40 under 40 healthcare innovators and top 100 innovation CEOs by World Business Magazine. Brian, we're so honored to have you join us on our Startup Connect series. I know I've talked a lot. Do you want to quickly say hi to our audience first? Well, thank you so much for having me, uh, Vanessa and Sean. This is uh, an honor for me to be here as well. I applaud the work that you're doing. Uh, groups like this are so important for building this uh, innovation and entrepreneurship ecosystem. And so it's an honor for me to be here. And at any time I get an opportunity to share this journey that we're on at MedRhythms, that's always an honor as well. So thanks for having me. Of course, um, it's also a privilege for us to have you here. Um, so now I will pass on to Sean and um, for the introduction of MetRhythms. And yeah, floor is all yours. Absolutely. Thanks, Vanessa, for the um, in-detailed intro. And um, thanks again, Brian, for joining us today. I think it's easier if we just invite Brian to, to, to explain, explain it in, in, in more um, sort of with more of his experience. Uh, so maybe let's just dive right into the first topic, which is about um, his exploration in music therapy and rehabilitation industry. So Brian, for our audience information, could you please explain maybe in layman terms, what is music uh, therapy industry? Why did you pick it? And what does a product do differently in this field? Yeah, well, thanks for that. It's, it's a good sort of uh, opportunity, to, I think, to, to give some background, as you mentioned, first on, on just uh, the music therapy industry in general. For me, I've always loved music, um, and I think it's something that a lot of us can relate to, and I've always loved <clears throat> playing music, performing music, but when I found the idea that music could actually be used to help people um, was really what turned me on to this idea of, of music therapy, and I had a very profound moment in my uh, uh, college career prior to choosing music therapy where I witnessed the power of, of music on a boy who had severe developmental delays. And I think it's important here to sort of drive some context of sort of what happened later on in my career. But as I witnessed, uh, there was this boy who was about 18 years old, um, and he was physically and cognitively functioning at about a one-year-old level. So very severely impaired. He was in a wheelchair, couldn't speak. And uh, there was a music therapist in the room uh, who was not trained in neuroscience, which is what I went along to do, but he just used music uh, and, and presented this boy with music. And within the first 10 minutes of this boy being exposed to music, he began to physically and cognitively function at a higher level than what anybody in his life had ever seen before. To the point that people who worked with him every single day and his family came in the room and they were in tears because they couldn't believe how this boy was responding to music. And it was at that point that I knew that A, that this was my calling in life, that I needed to figure out how to use music in this way. But number two is if we could explain how that happened in this boy's brain. And I assumed that there must be a reason why he had this response to music. That if we could answer that question, then that's when we could really harness the power of music and replicate it to help a lot of people. And so I got into the field of music therapy, which is really the, the use of music to address any sort of um, uh, uh, health outcomes from mental health, neurologic outcomes, et cetera. I focus really in on the neuroscience of this. So how can we use music and apply it to neuro rehabilitation? Um, and all of the, and there's a specialization within the field called neurologic music therapy, which is what I'm trained in, which is uh, standardized interventions, much like you'd see for a physical therapist or an occupational therapist or a speech therapist. And uh, except the medium is music. And all of these standardized interventions are based upon uh, neuroscience research of human music perception and production. So essentially, how does music objectively engage the human brain? And then how can we then use that to improve neural rehabilitation? And that's really what got me started at, at Spalding, where I developed their first program. And from there, uh, we saw some really incredible results. And what drove MedRhythm's beginning and continues to today is figuring out how do we bring this important care to everybody around the world that we believe not only need it, but deserve to have access to it. Um, that's a very 
Well, I guess that's like a very um, comprehensive um, story on like what brings you here. But I guess like for the first section of our um, sort of discussion, um, I kind of want to like um, sort of like walk backtrack a little bit um, to understand a bit better, like what brings you to music therapy specifically. So Brian, I was looking on your bio and what stood out to me was that you were previously like classically trained. So you were um, before you were uh, affiliated with like Chicago Youth Symphony as well as some other symphony orchestras. Uh, so I'm just like curious, um, like how did you make, decide to make the transition from um, classical performance to music therapy? Like, do you wanna share some examples or anecdotes that brings you there? Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, I mean, my background, I was originally trained as a violist um, and then went on to get more, much more involved in, in playing percussion, a variety of percussion instruments. And I loved music, I loved performance. Um, and I played in everything from orchestras to rock bands throughout my, my, my time growing up. Um, I knew that music was gonna be a very important part of my life and my career, but I also knew that music performance, uh, or excuse me, music education was not for me. Um, that becoming a music educator was not the route that I wanted to go. And while I loved performance, I also didn't feel the same sort of uh, calling to it or passion for it. Um, at the time, that was really my own, only understanding of careers in music. Um, and then it was really when I, uh, the story that I told when I saw music therapy for the first time and the deep impacts that it had on people that I knew that this was the way that I was meant to be using music. And so it was really by witnessing the power of music for the first time and just being lit up by it and wanting to understand more, to understand how, and then really to try to figure out how we bring it to people. Awesome. Um, so you so you mentioned that you saw like the power of music and really found your passion in um, the music rehabilitation as well as ther therapy, and then um, think you uh, started the first inpatient full time neurologic music therapy program um, at the teaching partner of Harvard Medical School, right? Um, so we're just like very curious about like that experience, like how do you uh, turn the passion into starting the program? Uh, do you have to like uh, learn some of the like the technicalities of music therapy to be more like you know uh, qualified to start a program and how was that journey like? Yeah that journey was um, uh, I mean comprehensive because uh, when you think about starting a program in healthcare you know there's the there's the clinical intervention piece but then there's also the, the entire sort of business of healthcare that you have to navigate as well. And when I was starting the program, the thing that was most important to me is that I first became sound clinically. So I needed to be what I felt to be very good at delivering clinical interventions that delivered outcomes that people would care about. Um, and for me, that was really thinking about how do we develop objective outcomes and quantifiable outcomes in our patients. And the work that I was doing, which was uh, actually a lot around uh, gait training, so improving the way that people walk. We could very objectively measure how fast people were walking, how far people were walking, um, their quality of walking um, objectively as well. And so I spent uh, a lot of time just collecting lots of data to prove that these interventions could work. Um, and so as I was treating patients, um, you know, I would do lots of both um, uh, collecting of data, but I also videoed almost every one of my sessions with patients to, so that I would have actual tangible video assets to show to people. Once we had built sort of that following, um, uh, sort of uh, when I say following, I mean, there was a lot of people that were getting excited about music therapy. Um, that was when I uh, approached the president of Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital at the time, uh, whose name was David Storto, um, about the prospects of starting a program, which was really a, a, a journey in advocacy, uh, in education, in understanding how hospitals run. Because even though something might be good for patients, it doesn't mean that patients are going to get access to it. Um, and so I had to work very closely with the Spalding administration to actually build a program, meaning create a position that didn't exist 
before so that we could get this program off the ground. And so I guess like a follow-up question on this would be, um, so from like starting from scratch, um, uh, you know, like getting yourself known with um, the director there and like starting to build your credibility, like how long did it take, um, you know, to like carry those quantifiable data as you mentioned um, and then bring it to the pro program? It's a good question. Um, I spent about a year collecting data, having lots of data. And then it took um, about uh, six months, just about, well, I'll say the process uh, was cumulatively, um, you know, a year plus of really, it was not only just creating a relationship with the, the head of the hospital, but we were also working with clinicians and patients, um, getting their testimonies and their advocacy for the program. Um, and before we took it to the to the president, and from the time that I met with the president until the program was uh, was implemented, um, was about four months. But it was accumulation of uh, a very long time of building advocacy for the work. Awesome. And during that, like building advocacy, like did you partner with um, someone of a similar background, or was it um, sort of like uh, mainly um, you started off this process? Yeah, so I started off clinically, certainly, but as we started to, to focus, you know, on um, building this program and actually establishing a program, it's actually when I met my co-founder of MedRhythms, Owen McCarthy, um, who he and I went to undergrad at the University of Maine together, and I knew him there, and he was, uh, at the time, just about to start his uh, uh, MBA at Harvard uh, Business School, and so he was giving me lots of feedback actually about structuring a business plan and how to take this to the president of the hospital and really advising me as a friend, um, which is how essentially the beginning of MedRhythm started um, was him providing the, some, some very important operational and strategic uh, advice. Okay, that's like a, that brings up to a very interesting point that I wanted to follow up is that, um, so you first like uh, started off this um, music therapy inpatient program and then sort of got connected with your college friend. Um, but I'm just curious, like during this process, to what extent did you figure out that, oh, like there is a pain point um, in the field that prompt you um, to think about, oh, maybe I should start a business here. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting journey because as soon as I started this, program at Spalding. We were seeing patients were getting better faster with greater results. And we now had the neuroscience to not only explain how this was possible, but also how we could standardize and replicate. And very quickly after I started the program at Spalding, the demand for my services, both from physicians who were writing orders for me to see their patients within the hospital, but also from patients and their family members who were saying to me, you know, Brian, you helped my dad walk again. How do I get more of this when I leave the hospital? And at the time, the answer really was, there's nothing you can do. And that was an awful conversation as a clinician for me to have with patients and their family members who so badly wanted to recover, who so badly needed help, when I knew that I had something that could help them, but had no way to provide it to them. Um, as you can imagine, there aren't many people doing this work uh, in the world in terms of music therapy and, and very specifically trained through neuroscience. And so my journey to entrepreneurship was I found a need that was very clear. I then found uh, a solution and knew I had a solution to it. And because of that, I felt like I had a responsibility to do something about it. So my, my journey to entrepreneurship came really through a need and through a, a responsibility that I felt like I had to my patients. Um, and so we started it to try to make a difference. Gotcha. So I guess like now we want to transition into the second area where we wanted to talk a bit more um, on your current company, which is Met Rhythm. So first of all, I guess like the question we have is like, how did you find the product market fit for uh, for your um, product? And what, what, what is your current main customers? Yeah, well, I mean, as we think about... Uh... The, the world of healthcare, you know, there's a lot of unmet needs, right? Um, there's a lot of needs that patients have across diagnoses. Where we were seeing the greatest amount of improvement objectively and quantifiably, uh, as I mentioned, was using music to improve walking. It's an intervention that's called rhythmic auditory stimulation. It's based upon the neuroscience 
of how rhythm can engage the auditory system because it's an auditory cue and how closely connected the auditory and motor system are in the human brain. And so it's based upon uh, sort of 30 years of research demonstrating how rhythm can improve walking. We were seeing these outcomes. And so then we thought, well, let's look at the market, right? And see what the need is for people that have these walking deficits. And we found that just for people who had strokes alone, that there were 3.5 million people living in the United States alone with walking deficits due to their stroke. And as we looked at that, um, we then look at the market to say, well, what, what is out there now that's treating these patients? And what we found was that there was nothing, that there's nothing on the market that has been shown to be able to improve the way the patients walk after they've been discharged to their homes and stopped getting physical therapy. So we believed that we had a, uh, an intervention that would work in this population based upon our clinical experience. Um, also saw that it was a big need but also believed that, you know, as you think about, uh, everybody's gonna ask the question, you know, around money and, and reimbursement, et cetera. There's also a strong health economics case here, which is if you can improve the way that people walk, you can actually reduce things like falls. You can make people more independent in the community, keep people on their feet longer. And not only do patients and their caregivers care, but also the healthcare ecosystem cares, providers care doctors care. So <clears throat> I think, Brian, thank, thanks so much for sharing all those story. I, I, I personally feel like it's super inspiring when you say that um, you were trying to build up a program because there does not exist such a, a, a care service for, for people who are looking, people don't really think that this is even possible. Mm -hmm. And then you started to quantitatively um, iterate the product so that um, you can prove um, sort of through experiments and through collecting data uh, about how, you know, these things can actually be done digitally. So I guess in terms of um, building the product, in terms of the question like when Vanessa was asking, um, you know, product market fit about customers, I guess um, a really interesting and important question as my follow-up would be, how do you use these data or the feedback you collected from the customers to actually iterate the product, to actually improve it um, over time? When you said you videoed every um, sort of hmm. sessions with your patients, what was the most important or, or, or impactful feedback you got from, from those practices? Yeah, it's an interesting question because, and I think I'll answer that in two ways. And as we think about improving product experience, um, you know, I think, well, before I get into those two things, I think the first thing to, to mention is you have to be addressing something that matters, right? So when we think about successful business, does the outcome that you're addressing matter? And there's a lot of answers to, to whom this could matter to, right? Does it matter to providers? Does it matter for patients, et cetera? Given the fact that this is an intervention that we were building, um, when you ask about who the customer is, the customer is really all three of those people in that healthcare ecosystem. It is patients have to use it, providers have to prescribe it, and payers have to pay for it. So when we think about our customer, we have to meet the needs of all three of those stakeholders in healthcare. So fundamentally, you have to have a product, and I believe you know we're in healthcare to help people. One, the product has to work. Right. So in the very early days of building the product, we decided and figured out that improving people's walking mattered and it could matter to each of those healthcare ecosystems. But how we do that um, was a very product specific um, sort of journey where we did hundreds and hundreds of hours of product testing to build algorithms. Uh, and, and maybe it's important to give some context to what our product is um, also in this in this context. And essentially what we do is we have sensors that connect to the shoe, one sensor that goes onto each shoe. We collect clinical grade biomechanics in real time. So that's things like uh, stride length, symmetry, speed, cadence, how fast somebody walks, um, their foot angle in space, et cetera. That feeds into our algorithm, which is based upon a mobile device. And then music is delivered via headphones. At the core of our product is our, what we call our clinical thinking algorithms, 
which take the data coming in from the shoe and respond to that data with music. So we've built a system to essentially automate the process of rhythmic auditory stimulation such that it can be delivered in, in the home setting without the need of a clinician present. And so that's sort of what the product sort of looks like and what it does. So it's intended to be used in home without the need of a, cl uh, a clinician present. So we had to do hundreds of hours of product testing to literally build these algorithms. And the way that we did this, if there's any sort of interesting, you know, uh, tech folks in the audience, that I would, uh, uh, in our early days, would literally, we would have stroke survivors come in, we'd hook the sensors up to their shoes, and I would manually make changes to music and we would stopwatch them. So we everything was time synced. Then our engineering team would go and sort of code those decisions that I made. And then we would retest it again. And we had to do that for thousands and thousands of hours of testing to make sure that we got the clinical thinking correct. So that's sort of one avenue of um, you know, rapid iteration and in a small startup, that was really what we did very well, um, is that we could, uh, we could iterate very quickly on changes that needed to be made to the software and the hardware. The other piece of it too, which people, uh, yeah, I think is important to point out if people want to build products in healthcare, which is the product experience. If you look at adherence to healthcare interventions, it's astronomically low. Even when it's something, quote unquote, as simple as taking a pill, adherence to prescriptions are very, very low. So you have to also not only have a product that works, but you have to have a product that people will use. And so we spent significant amount of time and still do to this day. Um, significant amount of time um, working with our end users, e.g. the patients, to figure out how we build a system and a product that not only works, but is easy to use, that can be an easy, an easily navigated by somebody who's had a stroke and may have limitations of only use of one arm or cognitive deficits, et cetera. But one of the key elements of, I think, our early success in both of those areas were the advisory boards that we built. So we built on the science side, as we were building algorithms and our clinical thinking, et cetera, we built um, scientific advisory boards that were um, comprised of world-leading neurologists and researchers who would help us think about the most cutting edge science best practices and how we would think about building evidence to support our product. And we also built a patient advisory board. So this is people living with stroke, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease that we'd be building products for to help give us insight into our own product development strategy and features to help us understand what do patients really need? How do they need it? And how do we build a product that fits that? We have a, we have a uh, premise at, at MedRhythms where we call it sort of user in the loop development. And it's one of the things that I've been most proud of in our uh, process so far which is that we've always utilized patients in the development of our product. So even whether that's be testing or even just asking them questions, we've tried to keep their voice at the center of everything that we do. Wonderful. Um, the, the level of um, work that you put into it, the dedication from the engineering perspective is actually super respectful, um, especially when it comes to um, building such a product for, for the healthcare industry. Um, where people would actually rely on it for, for their better um, well-being. And um, I guess, Brian, you also mentioned a lot of times about the team, about um, we instead of I trying to do this thing by yourself, right? And I'm pretty sure um, this team has been um, really helpful. Uh, you mentioned your origin story with your undergrad friend who, who later on went to business school. Um, and I guess from, from there onwards, um, could you tell us a bit more about how did you build up this team um, over time? And what were you looking for the most um, in this entrepreneurial journey for digital health? What kind of people do you look for? It's a great question. Um, and it's always we, because I would not be here without we. Um, I certainly do not have any of the skill sets, nearly any of the skill sets necessary to build a successful company. And it really takes uh, an entire ecosystem so in early days, uh, when it was the co-founder and myself, we actually originally started treating patients and actually hiring other music therapists to, to treat patients. And so we had an early team that was building what we call domain expertise and using music to help people recover. But then our first 
um, hires was uh, uh, a single person who could hack together um, some sense of uh, an early days of technology with sensors and algorithms connected. And then we relied heavily on advisors. So as we thought about our, um, our business uh, in healthcare, as I mentioned, you have providers, you have patients, you have um, sort of uh, the, the doctors who are prescribing, there's regulatory, there's um, compliance, quality, these types of things. We actually built an early uh, advisory board that had one person that was an expert in each one of those areas. So somebody who was an expert on regulatory affairs, somebody who was an expert in uh, hospital administration, a doctor, somebody who's expert in science to help guide some of our early decisions because obviously we didn't have the capital to build you know, a, a huge team. And so then uh, from there, we hired our first engineers um, to really start hacking together. And I call it hacking together because we were, we, and we still tr try to live this uh, sort of ethos of being scrappy. And I, I can tell you the most, common thing that we, uh, sort of the most common traits that we looked for in our early employees, and that has continued today is number one, <clears throat> a uh, commitment to our mission. And when I say mission, I don't care about med rhythms. What I care about is our mission, which is helping patients. I want people, regardless of what function they have in the organization, whether they're engineers or whether they're even employees, interns, advisors, um, contractors that we work with when they wake up in the morning that they care about those patients that we're serving and that they're trying to serve. So that's number one. Number two, we want people who um, obviously are smart, but have aptitude. So that have the potential to grow and want to grow and are willing to grow and learn. And people that can work hard and be scrappy. And what I, what I mean by that is that you can be flexible. You can uh, 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 be action focused. It's something we care a lot about, that you can do things, make decisions and do things. And surrounding yourself uh, around that type of person um, was crucial to us in, uh, in, in early days and, and continues to be today. That is awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, Brian, I know it's hard to build a team from um, zero to one. And then uh, pretty sure that in the early days, it's, it's, it's very difficult to sort of prove to not just um, your your potential teammates, but also the investors, the value proposition, and and also mm -hmm. the functionalities of the product, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I and mean, you personally also mentioned that uh, at the beginning you would need the capital to to build a huge team. You um, uh, lack the hack capital to build a huge team. So I guess all of these questions lead me to um, my my follow up, which is about um, fundraising. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to um, proving your concept to, to the investors, especially in the music therapy field, which seems to be uh, more innovative and, and, and to some extent pretty niche to the, to the investors, do you feel any urgency um, in order to sort of prove to them this, this valid proposition from, from seed round to, to today in, in series B? And um, uh, how did you feel um, overall when you were um, pitching this idea to the investment field? Yeah, and it's really, it's interesting because we sit sort of at the convergence of two new and relatively unknown fields in healthcare. One, which we've discussed a lot about, which is music and neuroscience, right? So how th this is relatively unknown, <laughs> especially to the venture capital world. Um, you know, it's, it's relatively unknown outside of, you know, large metro areas. But we also, how we're delivering it through software and hardware. We're building digital therapeutics, which is regulated software that's regulated by the FDA that are prescription products. Digital therapeutics is also a new modality in healthcare. So we were really sitting at the convergence of this. And in our early days of pitching, you know, there were not many investors who A, knew what digital therapeutics were, or, and B, were willing to take a risk on an unknown intervention delivered through an unknown modality being digital therapeutics. And so early money is always difficult, um, but you know, it's interesting because people invest in people. So investors invest in teams. And, and I think that we worked really hard at the beginning to build relationships with people, to build relationships with investors, to demonstrate that we could make traction and essentially that we could do what we said we were gonna do, meaning, 
We would have conversations with investors, say, here's our plan for the next three months before they invested in Medrelim. Go execute and do those things and come back with results and things that we had learned. And in early days, that helped us a lot, I think, in building some credibility, not only around the intervention, but also around our team's ability to execute. Awesome. I think, uh, Brian, what you mentioned, um, you know, like being in a very niche field and um, like come up with like innovative ways such as actionable plan um, to build credibility with investors and building relationships. I think these are very applicable, especially to our aspiring entrepreneurs here in the MIT ecosystem, um, because um, what, what we found most of the time were some of our uh, potential founders were in like the deep tech field. And sometimes what happened was that um, their field might be very niche and there, there is also a need to like, you know, how do you explain that uh, properly to your potential investors? Um, yeah, so I think in the interest of time, uh, we would want to close up our discussion with for people in our startup connect ecosystem looking to build or join early stage startups in the field of digital health. Uh, what general advice um, do you have for them looking to turn their passion into products? Um, it's a great question. And I think as I even look at the journey till now, there are two things that I think are incredibly important. Number one, we've talked a bit about, which is you need a great ecosystem. So you need a team. So whether those are advisors, friends, supporters, teammates, whatever it might be, you need people who you can trust and who are committed to your mission, whatever that may be. And number two, I think, uh, is, is can't be stated enough, which is persever perseverance or persistence, as some might call it. Because as we think about what it takes to make a company successful, especially in healthcare, especially in a new industry in healthcare, it's really hard. And I'll tell you that. And there, people should not, uh, I think, expect this to be an easy road because it's not healthcare, it's a difficult industry. And so you have to be able to be flexible, to be able to, to change strategy sometimes if you have to, to make different decisions, to push yourself to think outside of the box, but it all comes back to you have to be persistent and persevere to make those decisions when things get tough. But at the end of the day, we're in healthcare and patients need us. And that's what keeps me drive driven every day is thinking about those patients that need our help, which makes the perseverance a lot easier. But it's hard. I think you know there's there's an element uh, uh, of, you know, st some startups maybe who have failed that maybe just stopped too early, or weren't willing to be flexible when they were given feedback either directly or, or through the market. But it's going to be a, a, a long journey in in healthcare. But the patients are counting on, on us to do it. Yeah, this is very inspiring. Um, persistency, perseverance, and staying mission focused, which is um, always to help patient. I think this is definitely um, like something that our um, aspiring entrepreneurs in our ecosystem will take it to heart. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. So in the interest of time, and I know we have a lot of great questions in the Q&A boxes. Um, so we want to transition into the Q&A session. Um, so I will pass on to Sean to kick us off there. I see there are a lot of questions piling out already. I'll <laughs> kick off for the Q&A. I think Clark asked, what kind of music does the product usually play to the, to the patients? Um, is it usually classic or country or popular? So right. as we think about music for, for the product, there's really two uh, elements that we look for. So we look at uh, for the objective parameters of music and the subjective parameters of music. So the objective parameters being, um, we need music that has four, four time or two, four time, that has a steady, consistent beat and has a strong beat salience as we call it, meaning that you can easily sort of tap along with or define the beats of the music. So that's the objective parameters that we need. Um, in addition to that, what the research shows is that your brain functionally responds better to music that you like. So your outcomes with the intervention are actually enhanced if you can use preferred or familiar music. So marrying that together is finding familiar music that also incorporates these objective parameters. So for that, 
Um, we recently signed a partnership with Universal Music Group, which is the world's largest record label. They own nearly 50% of the world's music. Um, and by virtue of that partnership, we get access to nearly their entire catalog of music from Motown to country to rock and roll, hip hop, everything. And so we have 40% or nearly 50% of the world's music um, for us to tap into to find songs that people like. And then we can screen it for those objective parameters. So the experience to the patient is essentially the patient is just walking to their favorite songs. How does the American hospitals accept this product as their patient treatment? Because in China, there would be very strict and long process to do the clinical conformation. Yes. So a couple of things. So we are pre-commercial. So I just want to say that, you know, we, we're not selling the product. Um, though the feedback thus far has been quite positive from um, the people who I would call sort of early adopters, meaning they adopt the, the, the idea or the premise of using music to improve walking through digital therapeutics. I mean, we're doing a, we're finishing up right now a uh, clinical trial um, that is with, it's an eight site randomized control trial with some of the nation's top rehab hospitals who have all been really wonderful partners and really excited about um, uh, working with us. So granted that's a clinical trial phase um, and you know, we're, not, we're not in a prescriber area yet, but you know, we're quite optimistic about, uh, about that potential in the future. Um, the next one would be Wei Hong. So I guess I'll pick one of those. Um, does the shoe that the sensor is attached to affect the metrics collected, for example, Timberland versus Nike? Good question. So the answer is no. Um, the great thing about the sensors is that they, they can connect to essentially any shoe that a patient wears. And that was done purposefully because we actually thought about embedding the sensors into shoes. Um, but what we actually found is that patients wanted the flexibility to be able to wear their own sneakers or their own shoes while they were walking. Um, the one thing that gets obviously challenging in all of that is like, open back shoes, so like sandals, because the sensors move a lot, which makes it difficult. Also, high heels can work, but the gait pattern of somebody walking in high heels is a little bit different than walking with flat shoes. That being said, we don't have a lot of stroke survivors that are wearing sandals or high heels when they do you know, their walking sessions, so we don't have to worry about that a lot, but it doesn't matter what type of shoes as long as the sensors can clip onto them. Thanks for that. Um, the next one would be Yujie. Hi, Brian. Uh, thank you for sharing your experience. Uh, I have a very uh, short question. Uh, so within several subdomain uh, application of music therapy, for example, anxiety uh, disorder or substance abuse, uh, how do you decide to focus on the gate-based uh, music therapy application? It's a great question. So when we were thinking about building a technology, the, I would say the primary data streams that we used was one, where did we have the most uh, research that demonstrated that it worked? Existing research. And if you look at gate-based uh, music research, it's about three decades of research in clinical trials showing this intervention works. Number two, it was where could we get the most objective data? We thought that that was really important, that we could objectively and quantifiably demonstrate outcomes. Walking is very easy to do that. And number two, we were really focused on building an autonomous system that could be used in home, meaning that you wouldn't need to have a clinician present in the home for the product to work. So where could we build a, a, a true closed loop that would allow that to happen? And based upon where the technology was um, in terms of the technology of the world, motion sensing, wearable sensors, the algorithms that we employ um, had advanced enough that we felt comfortable we could do that. And then fourth being, where was the biggest need? Um, and the, uh, for improving walking and the, the, the deficits that that caused um, was a big unmet need across uh, populations. So those are the primary sort of thought streams that we analyzed. Next one is uh, Xiang Meng. I kind of wonder, you are you are only use a sensor on a shoe right right now, mm -hmm. that shoe, and uh, 
the problem and, and you are only being like focusing on the patient with strokes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, yeah, my question is basically, uh, how do you think about of the possibility to uh, scale up to general population? And uh, how does it deal with the sensor thing stuff? I, I guess like I've been thinking of this question too. Yeah. Okay. Good, good, good yeah. questions. So we are furthest along in with the stroke population. We have ongoing clinical trials in MS, Parkinson's disease, and functional neurologic disorder. So the, uh, the, the uh, intervention can be applied to any neuro disease and injury. So we will be, we'll be, we will be building out products across neuro disease and injury state. Um, as we think about like the sensor that connects to the shoe, what's really interesting is that we have to evaluate as an organization as well, what we need from a technology perspective to what we call power the algorithm. So what level of data do we need to power the algorithm? Um, but then also we have to marry that with usability, right? As I said, if people won't use a product, they won't get an outcome. Um, the clip-on sensors may not be the may not be the the optimal sensors from a usability perspective for every population. We found in the stroke population that they gave us the fidelity of data that we need um, in this specific population. Um, but you know, as we think about other populations, we may be flexible in in what types of sensors we use or where the data comes from. So we're open to to being creative there in the future. The next one would be uh, Xiao Hong. Thank you. Thank you, Brian, for sharing experience. Um, I'm really impressed by your patient advisory board. <laughs> um, I have an MD background and a clinical research experience in Boston. So my major question here will be, um, is there any regulatory um, challenges from the hospital IRB when you um, conduct the clinical trials. Um, if I understand correctly, you're collecting data um, by these sensors. So will we collect any like patient identifiable data that will be challenged by the hospital IRB? Yeah, so when we are collecting, uh, so as uh, a couple of things, the study endpoints for each of our clinical trials mm-hmm. um, or for most of our clinical trials, I say, um, are not actually collected by the device itself. So we use okay. like functional measures that are used by physical therapists, like walking mm-hmm. speed assessments as primary mm-hmm. endpoints. Mm-hmm. The, the, we are collecting obviously the data from the sensors going in the shoe to power the algorithm. That's mm-hmm. all de-identified. So we mm-hmm. have no idea who that is applied to. So that mm-hmm. is something we have to think about. Um, mm-hmm. And also, most of our sites uh, do uh, some level of technical audit of our product in terms of like security, HIPAA, mm-hmm. et cetera, um, yep. that we have to go through at each one of our clinical trial sites before beginning. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yep, You're that's my question. Thank you. Um, the next one would be Zhao Yu. Uh, I'm a speech therapist, and I happened to listen to one of your lectures uh, at IHP for the traumatic brain injury class. So it's very nice to hear you speak again. My question is: I recently transitioned from a like state-run setting to a private setting, and this is kind of one of my struggles. So how do you balance the nature of healthcare, which is we want to help people, uh, and the nature of business, which is you know, we, we need profits to keep on going. That's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, what's interesting about that is I don't actually see those two things being opposite of one another. I mean, we think about reimbursement. I mean, I think that's why reimbursement is important, right? So that we can provide access to, uh, to care to people who can't otherwise afford it, right? And so I think building value and demonstrating clinical value eventually should lead us to being able to uh, receive value, e.g. making profits and allow us to grow, right? The other thing that it's interesting is one thing that we did at, at MedRhythms when we were running, you know, as we are, which we still do, we run a therapy practice where we employ uh, neurologic music therapists and we have a pro bono clinic. So all of our clinicians have, uh, have a client that they treat for free um, that can't afford services. And so I think that, you know, 
as a speech therapist, I mean, there's, there's, uh, we, we historically um, had run or music therapists do in general, historically run on a private pay model, which makes that question that you're asking a little bit more challenging because you're asking people to pay out of pocket. However, you know, you have to be able to make the balances or make the decisions that are, are best for your organization that will allow you to either stay in business or grow. Hopefully, as you grow, that means you can then also provide care for patients who can't afford it, whether that's through um, grants or waivers or free services or whatever that, that may be. Um, so it's a good question and something that you really need to think about. I don't know that they always have to be opposing, though. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I feel you. And I think because uh, I just transitioned to China and we don't have that kind of reimbursement system yet, but this is definitely something we can work on. Thank you for your answer. You're welcome. Thanks for the question as well. Uh, the next one would be William Yao. I think William asked about um, how you have relied, uh, have you relied mostly on the advisory board you mentioned, or have you obtained outside counsel in terms of um, the legal questions that you faced? That's a great, that's a great question. <laughs> um, so in, I would say that um, in very, we have a very complex uh, I would say legal team, which are primarily, uh, it's a, different lawyers that we use. We were actually told one time recently by um, our, our law firm that we would make an excellent law school case study because we do, we have clinical trial law, we have corporate counsel law, we have IP law, we have regulatory law, we also have music licensing law. So there's entertainment law and that, so it goes across the board. <clears throat> so we, in, in very early days, um, we had a corporate lawyer um, who was incredibly helpful to us in getting everything that we needed to get right in terms of uh, getting the company started legally. As we've gotten more complex, um, we have uh, used outside counsel um, that have expertise in each of the individual areas. I have always advocated that I thought that that was really important and really helpful for us, uh, particularly when you think, you know, sort of long-term investment. My take on this is lawyers are, are, are worth the money um, to, to do, uh, particularly in complex markets like healthcare. You know, getting a good regulatory lawyer, getting a good um, IP lawyer, et cetera, is really important. Um, to grow. So we always used outside counsel. Hope you enjoyed this episode. MIT CEO stands for MIT Chinese Entrepreneurs Organization. We're an MIT student group founded in 2017. And our mission is to build a community where entrepreneurial thought leaders can learn from aspiring founders, renowned professors, and prestigious investors. Please subscribe to our Startup Connect series for more content like this and follow us on Spotify, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you.